Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Well, good evening. Welcome to episode 00072 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James, broadcasting to you once again from Radio City Docklands. Uh, I'd like to start off by acknowledging that uh, Radio City Docklands is actually on Wurundjeri country, and I pay my respects to them and other members of the Kulin Nation, past, present and emerging. And never forget, this land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So here we are. It's uh, now mid-September and we're finally getting through this second wave. And again, the Aboriginal community, the way it's dealt with this pandemic has been absolutely exemplary. Through a mix of hard work and, let's face it, good fortune. We need all the good fortune we can get at the moment. Um, The First Nations communities uh, across Victoria have been impacted minimally. Indeed, the latest data shows we have seen a total of 74 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in our community, with 69 people recovered and five cases still active, and we wish those cases, the five cases that are still active, all the best. Now, that it's um, the fact that uh, we've been able to contain it to such low numbers is down to the public health readiness of the Aboriginal community-controlled health sector the messaging from a number of community agencies ensuring people know their rights around law enforcement, agencies making sure that uh, women fleeing domestic violence have a place to go, even in times of lockdown, Uh, the advocacy of the Aboriginal Legal Service and others to ensure that prison settings remain safe from COVID given the massive over-representation of Aboriginal people locked up in prison. Uh, I've got to remember the teachers and the teachers' assistants, the, the Koori educators, uh, who work tirelessly to ensure kids get the education they need in a homeschooling setting. But, of course, the um, strange and the uh, perverse thing, and at the same time wonderful thing about this pandemic, is that Aboriginal people have been able to get through this because the vast majority of people have been doing the absolutely right thing. Like I said in the early days of um, COVID-19, 157 years ago, back in March, Never before in our lifetime has my health been as important to you as your health is important to me. So very important. So as a result, one of the most vulnerable cohorts in the community has survived intact. So give yourself a pat on the back and then go and wash your hands and don't touch your face. Well done. Got to say, though, if uh, you think we're immune from a third wave, we are not, literally. And I think we're all well aware of that at the moment, so we've got to keep doing the right thing. But uh, on to tonight's show, shortly I'll speak with uh, Professor Barry Judd, the Director of Aboriginal Indigenous Studies at the Faculty of Arts, the University of Melbourne. He wrote a piece in Pursuit recently about uh, Carlton Premiership player and MacArthur man, Sid Jackson, and more broadly, he wrote about the way the VFL and AFL have been dealing with racism over the years when it comes to our Aboriginal players. So we'll have a yarn about that. There's some strong opinions there, and so do I. And in the second half of the show, I'll be joined on the telephone by the CEO of the National Native Title Council, 
We'll have a follow-up discussion on the um, impact and ramification of Rio Tinto's destruction of the Dukon Caves in the Pilbara. You might remember I had a lengthy conversation with uh, Marcy Langton a couple of weeks ago on the same matter, but there have been developments. So we'll talk about them and the way forward from there. So that's the show for tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget, Radiothon is still on. RRR.org.au is the place to go if you want to subscribe to the greatest radio station in the known universe. I would love to reread your names after initially mispronouncing them live on air. So don't be shy. Get on uh, get on the R's and um, uh, subscribe. This is the mission on 102.7 Triple R, Radio City Docklands. Stay safe. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Now to tonight's first guest. <clears throat> Recently, the AFL had its uh, Dreamtime round a celebration of Indigenous players' contribution to the game of Australian rules football. The same weekend, the story of Yorta Yorta man Robbie Muir's horrendous treatment throughout his career was in Kilda, was also published by the ABC, and I do urge you to check it out. It's a great piece by Russell Jackson. Uh, so it led to our first guest to actually pen a piece of his own on the broader history of the interaction between Indigenous players and the VFL slash AFL. Professor Barry Judd is the Director of the Australian Indigenous Studies at the Faculty of Arts at the University of Melbourne, and he has penned a piece for Pursuit entitled Reconciliation and the Anglo-Australian Football League. Barry is on the line now to have a chat with us. Barry, welcome to the mission. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Now, you touch on a lot of things in the article, which is a great article, by the way. Um, but let's um, let's start with the timing of it. I mean, I guess, Barry, like me, you would have been shocked by, but not surprised, when you read the, the Robbie Muir story. I was absolutely taken aback by the story. Um, firstly, I think it was uh, one of the best pieces of football journalism written in many years, and I really hope that the... Uh, journalist involved in the prize for uh, exposing what happened to Robbie Mueller as a player. Uh, I uh, am of a vintage uh, that I uh, remember Mueller as a player as a, a boy growing up in Ballarat, and I did grow up in Ballarat. Um, mm-hmm. And when I read the things that occurred to him in the context of Ballarat football, I was uh, very shocked, uh, not knowing those things had uh, happened to him. And um, the, there were several things in the article that really jumped out at me as highly problematic. Um, and I guess uh, one of those things was the idea that a young fan uh, from country Victoria would go to uh, the big time in a club like St Kilda and instead of being mentored and supported by teammates, his first experience at the club was being urinated on by uh, teammates. Uh, And the other thing that really uh, disturbed me, I guess, in the story was the fact that at least since the late 1990s now, the AFL has become a brand which prides itself on its engagement with Indigenous Australia and promotes itself as an organisation at the forefront of reconciliation in this country. And to find out 
that uh, Robbie Muir, the past player, is uh, not invited to um, things like um, the Indigenous round uh, was simply amazing to me uh, that this man who had been treated so poorly continues to be treated so poorly in football circles. So uh, the story uh, came out uh, during the Doug uh, Nichols round and really ruined my Sunday. It was the first thing I read on Sunday morning um, and I just had to do something in response, so I penned an article about it. It, um, If we'll just stick on Robbie for a sec, because it it, it moved me deeply as well and... um, uh, I know people that uh, are, you know close close to Robbie and um, you know related to him. Um, I, one of the things that surprised me as well is the way that the AFL media has covered his story. Whenever you see um, reference to him, you see you see the the, the packaged footage of him. You know, um, others. You know, getting in fights with people, blowing with umpires, and the, and and the like. But what you don't see so much is what a magnificent player he actually was. And that, and that says a lot about yeah, the way he, the AFL media continues to, to cover some of this stuff. Uh, well, if, if, you, um, if you speak to people who were around Ballarat at that time, they often uh, say that Robbie Mill was perhaps one of the most uh, naturally talented players that Ballarat has ever produced. And um, the region has produced quite a number of champion footballers over the years so they're saying that um, referencing people like um, Adam Gould and Tony Lockett I guess, uh, Mm. that's how good uh, Robbie Muir was in the game and it's a real pity that even after the story uh, people, uh, some people I've had conversations with continue to reference um, his nickname uh, Mad Dog which again, uh, is very much a, a distortion of um, the facts of his playing career. And uh, the focus, again, becomes on his response to racism. And uh, by, do, by doing that, by focusing in on uh, the violence, the highlight reels of his retaliation, it really... Um, it takes attention away from what he was responding to, which was a sport at that time where racism was so endemic uh, to the culture of Aussie rules that uh, nobody saw anything wrong with um, what was happening to him at that time. So I think it's a, a great shame, and he's had to live with that uh, for a very long time now. And um, I think at the very least... Um, we need to move beyond the nickname. And I think it was really telling in the story that one of the things that he wanted was to be known as uh, Robert instead of uh, by the nickname that was um, forced upon him. Yeah, if we just move on to to your article, you describe the way the AFL this year celebrated Sid Jackson's legacy, the legendary Carlton footballer, and you celebrate that, but at the same time, you accuse the AFL of providing a rose-tinted version of Sid's story. Tell us, tell us about Sid Jackson and, and um, his involvement with uh, Carlton and the VFL. 
Uh, well, uh, I can tell you what I know about his story. Um, last century, uh, I met Sid and we struck up a, a friendship and a um, working relationship. At that stage, he had um, not really delved into his past, um, like um, many Aboriginal people from a stolen generation background, uh, they often find it too difficult to delve into this history and uh, it requires age and distance to um, start to come to grips with what happened to them as uh, babies, toddlers, uh, young children and when I met Sid, uh, who asked and not knowing anybody from the university sector whether I could help him do some research, we traced him how it was he came to be Roland's uh, native mission in the southwest of Western Australia, a place where he grew up and uh, a place uh, where he was uh, removed to after being uh, stolen from his mother uh, and siblings on the eastern goldfields of Western Australia. So um, Sid... Uh, as everybody knows, everybody who knows football at least, became an exceptional um, and highly successful uh, player in his era. Um, he played in the 1970 Premiership team uh, with Carlton, uh, which is remembered as the best grand final of all time. And, and what was it that he uh, remembered about that, that day? Sid uh, uh, remembers um, not the victory, uh, not uh, being on the winning team so much, but he remembers um, probably more than half of that crowd, which was a record crowd of 121,000 people at the MCG, uh, actually vilifying him, but vilifying him, uh, calling him names, racist names. He can remember the racism. Uh, so that's, um, that's a very telling uh, insight into his recollections of playing. Uh, by oh. retracing uh, his early early history... Uh, sorry, you were... No, no, that's OK. No, I'm listening to the story. Please continue. Uh, retracing his early history of child removal, um, I travelled uh, to many uh, places in Western Australia with him um, and it was quite a, a traumatic uh, recovery of history. Um, and one of the things that really sticks in my mind is uh, Sid uh, reflecting on some of the work we were doing. Uh, he would often say, um, everybody focuses on my football success. Uh, no one really wants to know this story. And... In his view, uh, football, to some degree, has been, or his football uh, success has been used to some degree to justify uh, his removal as a child from his Aboriginal family. Mm. Uh, his comeback has always been, if they had have provided uh, an oval and footballs to my community in the Eastern Goldfields, I still would have been a great footballer. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great that's a great comeback. I I heard one story actually um, um, 
that it was colloquial story, story, but um, that when he first arrived at Carlton, uh, one of the trainers there refused to to rub him down or to massage him because he was black. Um, so that's a you know a, a great entree into the world of VFL. Um, one of the interesting things, uh, Barry, is the way that. Um, he was celebrated this year for reconciliation round, but the way it was portrayed by the the AFL and the AFL media was that it was just all beers, beer and skittles for him. That there was none of that racism. It was never touched upon. There was no nuanced analysis of the experience that um, he had. And again, the response to Robbie Muir's story as well seems to be lacking that um, nuance as well. Um, in your article, you, you write, as a researcher of Indigenous people and Australian sports, the inability of the AFL to move beyond promotional spin and annual self-celebratory congratulations for overcoming racism to commence a true process of reconciliation rests in the facts that uh, rests in the facts of the AFL and its own history. And you say, in my view, structural changes similar to those that have already commenced in higher education need to occur. What are those changes? So uh, over the last uh, 10 to 15 years in Australian higher education, there's been a commitment uh, to include um, and develop uh, leadership uh, from Indigenous people at at the senior level of decision-making in universities. And there's been a development of roles um, which are pro-Vice-Chancellor Indigenous or Deputy Vice-Chancellor Indigenous. And that means that Indigenous people uh, bring their views to uh, the Board of Management, so to speak, in the university context. So Indigenous perspectives and ideas and issues are never left off the table uh, when, you know, decisions about the business are being made. Um, This is certainly not the case in respect to the AFL. Um, It's true that the AFL has been a significant employer of Indigenous people if we think of the over-representation of players. So for many years now, um, the Indigenous uh, players have made up about 11 or so percent of all players in the AFL system. That's all great. But we need to move beyond that. And uh, my uh, concern, as raised in the article, is that um, the system perpetuates a power relationship that emerged out of the colonial situation. Aboriginal people in the game, Indigenous people in the game, remain players, but where are they in terms of being on the... uh, in the senior management levels of the Australian Football League or where are they at senior levels within AFL clubs? Um, You could extend the argument and say, well, where are they in the marketing departments and the membership uh, departments of clubs in the league, et cetera, et cetera. Um, The change has been uh, contained to the playing field uh, not the boardrooms and not the uh, organisation of clubs. Uh, I'm generalising here a little bit. I, I do know that uh, the Richmond Footy Club mm-hmm. um, have done some very innovative things with their institutes. Um, Port Adelaide Football Club 
in South Australia has also um, gone out of its way to be a leader with uh, engagement programs. Uh, but um, the AFL itself, I think, is a particular problem still. Yeah, it's one of the few administrations of a professional sport in the world where the CEO is paid more than the, the top um, AFL stars actually performing out there on the track. So there's that juxtaposition as well. Uh, Professor Barry Judd, thank you very much for your time. If you want to read his article, it's called uh, Reconciliation in the Anglo-Australian Football League, you can go to pursuit.udmail.edu.au and uh, have a read. And uh, congratulations on the rest of your career, Barry. You're doing good stuff. So um, thanks very much for coming on this evening. Thank you. Pleasure. Nice to speak to you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. And to uh, tonight's second guest, last week we saw a red letter day when um, a great deal of pressure from Aboriginal groups, shareholder groups and super funds uh, resulted in the CEO of Rio Tinto, John Sebastian Jacques, stepping down as details continue to emerge with his company's involvement in the destruction of the 46,000-year-old Zhukong cave shelters in the Pilbara. So uh, what can we learn from what happened in the Pilbara and what does that mean for the relationship between mining companies, First Nations people across the country? Well, to give us his insights is the CEO of the National Native Title Council, Jamie Lowe. Jamie is a Gunditjmara Jabarong man. He's also the director of the Federation of Victorian... He's a former... I'm not sure whether it's former or your current director of the Victorian Traditional Owner Corporations. Jamie, you can correct me in a minute. And he advocates for the rights of traditional owners within the state of Victoria. And he's also a member of the First People's Assembly of Victoria. So this means that he is qualified to speak on such matters. Jamie, welcome to the mission. Yeah, thanks for having me again, brother. No sweat, no sweat whatsoever. Um, first of all, just for context, uh, describe the, the role of the National Native Title Council. Uh, so we're a, um, a lobbying body, um, which is made up um, of uh, Native Title bodies across the nation, Torres Strait, WA, all states and territories, um, the members of ours. So um, we try and um, fight for the rights of our, of our people. Um, through the vehicle, maybe title. Yeah, simple as that. Um, the announcement of the CEO um, of Rio Tinto's departure is, of course, welcome, and it shows a semblance of uh, corporate responsibility. But it barely—it's barely just a start in terms of rebuilding the like, relationships with uh, traditional owner groups. Um, what else needs to happen to rebuild that trust, not only by companies like Rio Tinto, but across the mining sector in particular? Yeah, well, I think as we all know, we're all, like all of the listeners, are, you know, they might not be kind of 100% up to speed with um, with this kind of situation, but we all know relationships. And um, if the trust within any relationship is um, is damaged for whatever reason, like there's time and effort that needs to go back into that and needs to show a commitment to change. Um, and so we've been calling out Rio Tinto, um, both publicly and internally, um, since the um, incident, um, the the Jukenwood um, explosion. Um, and so we welcome the change, 
um, at a leadership level, but, you know, will it even touch the sides? Because I guess, um, you know, the kind of, you know, there's still a lot of kind of water to go under the bridge yet. Um, and we need to kind of see significant change in policy, uh, leadership um, within Rio Tinto for us to kind of um, have any trust um, restored um, within the um, that mining company in particular, but within the mining sector as a whole. Yeah, I've heard, you know, from various sources now and covering it in the media that, you know, relationships and trust, particularly with Rio Tinto in recent years, has just gradually um, declined. Now, the, the surprising thing about the destruction of these caves is while it was totally morally bankrupt, the blasts themselves and their actions were actually legal and had received authorisation from um, two levels of government. So that leads me to the question, what's the risk of something like this happening again? Well, until there's law reform, I think it's the risk is the risk is high. Mm. Um, that's why we've been advocating on a national stage for law reform, um, both from the national level and also a state and jurisdictional level in all states and territories. Yep. But the federal government needs to step out in front of this and show some leadership and say, listen, we want to adopt the national standard of protection of cultural heritage, and we need all states and territories to um, to follow suit. Um, there's a live deal at the moment within WA. Uh, you know, it's got some improvements, um, i.e. Section 18, um, they're dismantling that, um, more powers to traditional owners, but it does fall short in some areas. Um, and so, yeah, so the only way we're going to be able to improve this and move through this is law reform. We can't kind of trust within the, the mining companies for their policies and procedures to stack up and protect um, heritage within the future. Now, we have a Senate inquiry happening at the moment, um, which seems to have had uh, broad uh, bipartisan condemnation of Rio Tinto's actions here. But is that Senate inquiry going to lead to, to the legislative reform that you, um, that you and others desire? Or is it just going to, um, I guess, put be a Band-Aid solution um, and an interim solution? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, certain inquiries can kind of do both of those things. You know, in the past, you know, there's just been a bit of a process and then, you know, no results happen um, at the end of it. That's quite, I guess it's up to, you know, groups like the Native Title Council and others um, to continue to put the pressure on. So, um, you know, when the findings of the, of the Senate inquiry come down, which I think they're going to be pretty damning, to be yeah. honest, um, you know, the, the politicians can play their role and we play our, our role as community to kind of keep the pressure on, don't release the, um, the I guess, the pedal from the accelerator because, um, you know, law reform has been a long time in the waiting um, and I think the time is now. And, you know, the models need to have a say around their own heritage. It's called Aboriginal heritage, Aboriginal mm. Torres Strait Islander heritage, so we should have control and have a say about what goes on with it. I guess, you know, despite the, you know, the, the destruction of these caves and the heritage associated with that, um, having gone back, you would have been pleased that there did seem to be a, a ground swell of condemnation that actually led to, to action by Rio Tinto to take this. And that's, um, and that's on the back of generations and generations of Aboriginal people um, through, throughout the years um, speaking up about these issues. Um, do you think that in terms of uh, shareholder groups and super funds, there's really now a very low um, threshold in terms of putting up with the way um, uh, mining companies treat 
um, Aboriginal heritage, which is, of course, Australia's heritage? Yeah, well, there are. Look, it's good to see some more allies getting on board. Um, for, for a long time now, obviously, we've been kind of left alone to fight the fight. Um, yep. You know, we've got um, our old people, um, our, our elders have been fighting this um, fight forever. Um, you know, 250 years now, they've been fighting it. Um, so, you know, I think more people are getting it. Um, it's taken a while to see these kind of um, other, the super funds, et cetera, because like, at the end of the day, that's who these other you know, corporate companies listen to. They listen to, you know, their, their peers, they, I guess. And they follow the money, eh? And, uh, and they follow the, follow the money. And, they, you know, in the past, they haven't seen, necessarily seen us as peers, so they follow the money. And so, you know, we can get these other you know, big super funds involved. Like the, the allies are, are critical. Mm-hmm. Um, the activist approach is also critical. Where people still march in the streets. It's, that, that's as big as ever. Um, and our mob's kind of in some ways, kind of putting a line in the sand and saying, you know, we've had enough. And, you know, that plays out in the Black Lives Matter movement, um, a whole range of other movements where we're just saying, you know, enough's enough and, you know, give me change. Now, another, you know, thing that I've discovered through um, following the the Senate inquiry as well is that um, the the mining agreements that are struck with uh, traditional owners um, actually have gag clauses so, you know, if people have been wondering, okay, well, what do the traditional owners think in relation to the Duke on Caves? Well, they may think many things, but they can't actually say anything under the agreement that they um, negotiated with, um, you know, this multi-billion dollar mining company. Surely it's time for these clauses to, to, to go if we're to move forward. Well, they need to, all, all current clauses need to be reviewed and elements like bad clauses, et cetera, need to be removed. Um, so... You know, the the mob is kind of hamstrung and being able to speak out on many issues that they feel what's like not not you know upholding their their actual human rights. So yeah, you know they absolutely need to be removed, and you know we're calling for change in that as well. Um, also, in the Senate inquiry, you know there's been you know Rio Tinto's misled the Senate. Yep. Um, on a number of occasions, um, you know what was uncovered there that there was other options available. Um, then tell a mob about it, um, and you know that's part of the way that led to the um, to blowing up the gorge. So, you know, you have to wonder whether they've actually breached their agreement with the um, the PKKP people. Yeah, there's um, so many um, so many various issues that are arising out of a sort of a forensic look at this now. And I understand that um, uh, BHP shareholders have also put, uh, you know, the BHP board on on, on notice in terms of actually um, ensuring that when they move forward in t- with some of their mining product projects that they actually um, uh, take into account the, the proper needs and the ancestral rights of First Nations people. Yeah, that's right. There's a resolution on the table. It speaks about a mem- um, moratorium, uh, you know, for work to, to, to halt until we can have assurances that, um, you know, cultural heritage isn't going to be destroyed unless it's all the consent of the people. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think the, um, you know, the allies are playing their part there and, um, you know, hopefully we can, we can, you know, get some wins here. Yep. Well, it was one small win last week, and it really is a sign. I, I believe, and I'm, I'm sure you're the same, Jamie. That, that that the tide is turning 
in relation to the the the, the nuanced dialogue we have around some of these issues in this country. And uh, you and your organisation plays a pivotal role in that. Um, I'll just ask you one very broad question before I let you go about the um, First Peoples Assembly. How's it travelling? Yeah, I think it's going all right. Um, you know, we've, we've got a pretty clear window. Um, we've got this term of government. You know, it's looking a bit shaky at the moment with all the stuff going on with COVID. Um, but, um, you know, I think our old people have been waiting too long for the treaty. Um, and so it's my kind of, my, what my old people are telling me is kind of we need to get this done. And so, you know, we're progressing, um, but, you know, there's not, I guess I wouldn't use the word urgency, but what I would say is that our old people have been waiting a long time for this, and so we need to kind of keep that in mind when we're negotiating. So to call out to the state government um, to, you know, I know we're a bit distracted at the moment, but, you know, you know, this has been 250 years in the making, so let's get on with it. Yeah, absolutely. We don't want to see a repeat um, as to what happened with the, uh, the the stolen generations and the compensation that they received. We lost a lot of our old people before they had a chance to see that day coming, and we don't want the same thing happening again with the treaty process. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Jamie, for your time. Jamie Lowe, the CEO of the National uh, Native Title Council. Thank you so much for your time. Cheers, brother. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.